You should have received a card uh, last week and maybe again this week. We hand you these cards and we post up on social media because we're actually, we're always excited for the teaching series that we're doing. This one in particular, we are encouraging you, um, exhorting you, invite people along, tag your friends and posts, use these cards uh, to, as an invite to folks. We really believe as we head into this Lenten season in this series that we're about to kick off today. Um, that there's something in here for everybody. Uh, anyone remember the WWJD uh, bracelets? Anyone remember these? Yeah, we ordered a couple hundred of them. It's going to be great. What would Jesus do? If you did not grow up in church, you, may, you still may be loosely familiar with this. It's a great idea. You just, around your wrist, you have some kind of reminder that would remind you, like, hey, what would, yeah, what would Jesus do in this situation? It's a great prompt, right? That could be worse. Could be like, what would you pick your favorite serial killer? You know, I don't know what your what your favorite uh, dictator would do. I don't know. It, it seems like at least it's a good move in the right direction in general for humanity. It's hard to disagree with. It was troubling in some parts because we're not always sure what Jesus would do. Uh, in fact, I think if we ever did a follow up to this series, it would be like, what did what did Jesus do? And using that as like a reference point because I think sometimes we're not even sure what Jesus did. But we thought it would be kind of a funny twist to insert a little N in there. Where I think the question of like, which we ask as followers of Jesus regularly is what does it mean for me to be an apprentice of Jesus? Right? The great commission, the, the job, if you're new to all this, the, one of the primary invitations for every Christian ever is to make disciples of all nations. Which as a side note, if you're not discipling somebody, um, you should uh, ask yourself uh, some questions about what that would look like for you to help somebody apprentice in the way of Jesus. So this word apprentice might be a nice modern word for us since we don't use the word disciple very often. How are we becoming apprentices of Jesus? And so you can always look at like an invitation like that and look at, all right, what are we supposed to do? But then there's always the flip side to that question, which is what are we not supposed to do? What are some things that would not be good to do? And so this series is not like a hit list on stuff like you shouldn't be doing. But actually, we kind of wanted to take that phrase and turn it um, to, to focus in on a kind of macro level of confronting our faith. If you live, move, and have your being here in Providence or in the surrounding region, some of the questions on that card that you got should not be unfamiliar. Right? Right? Isn't Christianity just a white man's religion? Aren't we better off without the way of Jesus? Isn't the way of Jesus homophobic? Isn't it, isn't it sort of sexist? The, 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 the overarching theme is like, aren't we kind of past this? I mean, maybe we could throw Jesus up there with like, I don't know, some sort of sage or roomy or somebody like that. And we'll just kind of leave him be with a couple like wisdom. Of course, though, we don't want to read it. This is in the air. And so I realize, though, that a lot of the questions that people have and assumptions about the way of Jesus, a lot of the critique people have about the way of Jesus, Jesus would have about the way of Jesus. A lot of the critique that people have of modern-day Christianity and some of the things that seem to be perpetuated, at least here in the West, especially amongst white evangelicals, let's just call it what it is, is that okay, tend to be, by the way, that's me, so I'm not like, taking a shot at anybody, 
Like, the, I think that Jesus would have a lot of problems with, with a lot of the problems that outside folks have. One of my favorite things to say, and unfortunately, unfortunately, I get the chance to say this often, is when people are like, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in Jesus. And I ask them more about that, what that disbelief is. And they describe the sort of faith that they have or the idea they have about the Christian faith. And I promptly remind them, like, I don't believe in that Christianity either. What would Jesus not do? I think Jesus would not divorce science and religion. What would Jesus not do? I I don't think that that Jesus would, would have the view that so many other folks have about Jesus and sexuality. We want to explore these things. For those of you who are new, we are a historic, orthodox, biblical, Bible-believing church. And we want to engage these questions thoughtfully and with grace. And so today, we want to look at this question as sort of a setup to the series, which is, aren't we better off without the way of Jesus? This is a question that, that I think, again, is the question above all of them. And then over the next five, six weeks, we'll start to drill down. Aren't we just better off without without this whole religion, church, Christianity thing. So if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to John 10, 10. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. These are the words of Jesus, by the way. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've had my bike stolen three times. Not the same bike, mind you. Three different bikes. This is problematic for somebody who gets around mostly by bike. When my wife and I first got married, we decided we were going to do the one car thing. We live in the city. There are buses all around. We don't need two cars. I work in the city. It was great when those scooters came around. Remember the scooters? They're like gone now, or now like some weird off-brand is back. But what were the scooters called? Bird? There's Bird and Lime. Anyone use those things? Oh, man, that was great. Even that, though, was kind of racking up the money. So I would bike pretty much everywhere I'd go. Um, my, uh, my most recent uh, bike that was stolen was this just beautiful, um, like kind of off-green teal, I guess, color, Bianca. Um, Bianchi. Oh, I said Bianca. Bianca. Um, Bianchi. And it, it, um, I mean, I'm having a moment right now just thinking about her. She's just beautiful. And, uh, I have a, a propensity, apparently, to just sort of hope in the world. Some of my friends call it, like, Andrew, you have sort of this luck of the Irish. Things just seem to work out for you. I tend to not worry a lot, a lot about certain things. Bikes is not the place where this has worked out at all for me um, when I look back at my life. Um, and so my bike was stolen right out of our garage. And I'd like to blame the person who robbed it. Obviously, they violated my space. Um, but it's an open garage with no door, and the bike was not chained up to anything. It was just sitting there. So um, as m- one of my friends so graciously put it, you basically just invited that person to come and take it. I actually think it's your fault. Um, I had another bike that I believe you can still to this day, five years later, see the remnant of up on Thayer Street near the Starbucks. Uh, I left my bike chained up there, and um, I I 
had to get somewhere quick, and so I hopped in the car with my wife or a friend, and so I took off, and I left it, and I forgot to come back and get it. Um, and then I, I, I forgot the next day, and then I forgot the next day, and I believe a solid week, if not more, had gone by, and I was like, oh, man, I really got to get my bike, thinking it's fine, just sitting up there, chained to the, uh, to the uh, banister there at Starbucks. I came back, and ever seen those bikes where you're like, who would just take two wheels and a handlebar? And yeah, that's me. I'm the guy who does, leaves the bike there. So somebody had just, in the middle of the night, decided to strip everything off the bike except for the frame. My favorite story being stolen from, though, with my bike was out front of a 7-Eleven over on Broad Street. Uh, just before I got married, a few friends of ours, we lived in a house down in South Providence. Um, this is sort of a mission house idea we were embedding ourselves in this neighborhood that was at risk for a number of reasons. And, and so I'm biking home, and uh, I pull up to the 7-Eleven. And I know that in general, I mean, I, I shouldn't say this part of town. My bike got ripped off on the east side, so whatever. But right over here in South Providence, higher likelihood, higher crime rates, all that. So I pull my bike up, and I'm like, I'll just be a second. And so I put my bike, and I lean it against the glass. I can see it from inside 7-Eleven. So I go inside 7-Eleven. I buy whatever, like, gross thing I'm going to buy. Um, and, uh, and as I'm coming up to the counter to stand in line, I look out and I see a figure run up, jump on my bike, and take off. I think I've shared this before in sermons where I, um, I have a bit of a justice complex. Um, like adrenaline spikes very quickly and easily in my body. And um, so, and probably would yours, but you probably would have had the wisdom to go, oh man, that's really awful. Maybe you'd open the door and maybe yell for a second and then you'd call the police, right? Normal human response. Yeah, I just started running after him. So I'm running after this figure down Broad Street in the pitch night and I'm running and I'm running and I'm yelling and I'm trying to somehow insult him like that will help. The one upside was that it was a fixed gear. Anyone know what a fixed gear is? Right, so the, the, in other words, you can't stop pedaling. It was great. The guy had no idea what to do with it. He kept banging his, like, the back of his leg as, as he's, like, pedaling. <laughs> that was the only little bit of justice. As he's pedaling, I'm just yelling, like, all of this, like, holy, holy things I'm yelling at him, by the way. I'm a pastor, obviously. So I'm just screaming, running, and I get, like, a good way down. I want to say conservatively a quarter of a mile. Like, I ran hard, and I had this moment as I looked around, like, what am I doing? And even if I were to catch this person, what is my game plan here? <laughs> to which I put my tail between my legs, turned around, and walked back. There's something about when you, get, when you get things stolen from you, you just feel violated, right? It just, it's, a, it's a pretty gross feeling. Anyone gotten something stolen from them? Like, it's, it, you, you, it was, it's like more than the sum of what happened. You're like, someone came into my house or came into my car. Like, I got stuff in there. I mean, they stole stuff, but like, I had that, like, someone walked up my driveway into my garage while my children were sleeping and took something from me. There, there, there's something that, that is wildly disturbing. Jesus here and talking about the thief is talking specifically about false teachers. <clears throat> now, we don't have time 
to, to get on the whole backstory here and all that's happening in Ezekiel and what he's referencing. But he's, he's looking at the classical view, looking at this passage. He's talking about folks, these different teachers and shepherds who are meant to lead these Hebrew people into life. A rabbi is meant to lead people to life, lead people to the well, lead people to goodness. Jesus is addressing uh, not like this isn't Satan. Some people like to attribute like Satan to this or the devil. That's just a poor reading of this particular passage. I have no, no doubt that's true of evil, but that's not what's happening here. The thief here are false teachers. The thief will come to steal and to kill and destroy. I think that's how you feel when you have something like stolen from you. There's this sense of, of deprivation. And Jesus is pointing out that there are a whole lot of people, and this has been the story of, of Israel from the very beginning up until now, people that are twisting the message of life. Maybe one classical reading of this text would be like the prosperity gospel. Anyone familiar with this term? Like this idea that like God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and if you just pray enough, fast enough, give enough, like everything will totally work out. You'll have money in the bank. It's this view that, um, you know, if you wish it into existence, everything will like just kind of magically work out for you, ignoring half of the Bible. It's not a, a healthy view. But it's more, maybe a more subversive or subtle view that I want to like offer to you today is that maybe the thief, there are definitely false teachers in our world, people who are twisting the, the good news. But the thief actually um, are people who want the kingdom without the king. That uh, a subversive view might be to look at our culture. In our cultural moment in the West, the thief in this story would probably cast Christianity and the way of Jesus as the thief. Like, like I think so often um, when we look at the, the different ideologies and viewpoints in our world, Western secularism, the kind of cultural moment that we sit in, would probably recite this verse like this. Religion comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Western enlightenment has come to give you life and life to the full. I want to take a moment and, and, and ask ourselves the question, which is true? Is the thief in, in our world... Is the false teachers the ones who have, when I say king, I should explain that phrase, a kingdom without a king, that they, they want the things that the Judeo-Christian worldview has posited as, as the best way to be, but they want it without Jesus. In other words, they want to plagiarize, which I, I want to make a bit of a case for. Are the false teachers in our world, um, is it really Christianity that is the thief and robbing us of life? Or actually, is it these other narratives that are contributing to our death? Maybe this is a way to help flesh this out if this all feels a little too heavy. Heady. Uh, 1971, the Beatles star John Lennon. I don't remember this song, Imagine. I believe I have a slide up there. I don't remember this song? It's kind of still floating around. 2018 Olympics in South Korea. This was like the anthem that was meant to like bring us together. Right? Nothing to kill or die for. No religion to... Imagine all the people, right? It's this call to unity, and it gets to lines like that, which are fine, but it's such a tiny microcosm of the world that would attribute unity to getting rid of their faith system. 
But it's, what's interesting is as the song continues to get used uh, as sort of a, a unifying anthem, uh, at the same time Imagine was released, there was another prophet who shared a different sort of dream. This was John Lennon's dream. At the, around the same time, you have Dr. King saying, one day in Alabama, little black boys and black girls would be able to join hands and little, with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Dr. Luther King's vision of peace and brotherhood springs from not a loss of faith, but, but faith itself, but its fulfillment. King said that, quote, one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You know what he's quoting there? He's quoting the Bible. He's quoting the Bible around the same time that Lenin is offering this dream of, you want to know what unity and peace looks like? Imagine nothing to kill or die for. Imagine that. No religion. King is fueling a movement of peace and unity based on his faith system. I think sometimes in our world we like to just bind these people up. Oh, Lenin and King would have held hands and walking off into the distance. I'm sure they might have been friends at some point or maybe could have been if they ever met each other. But their ideologies couldn't be more different. And it's important. It's important for us as we reflect on this question. Isn't the way of Jesus toxic and bad? Isn't Christianity bad for our world? We need um, to, to take a closer look at that. Who's right? Is the way of Jesus a thief? Or is Western... Western secular enlightenment, the thief. The idea that religion is a thief and Western secular enlightenment will bring us life comes from all over. Maybe you've read some of the new atheist movement, um, which is really popular in any university discourse. Um, there's all sorts of people who will posture this view. I, I want to pause for a minute. Even if you've n you don't have a reference point for a lot of what I shared, do, you, do many of you get this feeling? Do you, like when you're at the, the water cooler in your workplace, when you're sitting down like in the classroom of the university, anyone else feel this sort of, this viewpoint swirling around you? You feel this, right? So something fascinating embedded in the discussion that religion is toxic and bad for society that I want to look at. Something interesting that I want to walk ourselves through. I want to try to illustrate this with a few examples. So I'm going to pull up a bunch of quotes for you, so stay with me. In the popular 2011 TED Talk, Atheism 2.0, uh, School of Life founder Alan DeBodden, I don't know if any of you have seen this talk, incredibly popular talk, advocated a new kind of atheism that would retain all the goods of religion without the downside of religion. Kingdom without a king. He salivated over the black American preaching tradition and the enthusiastic response of congregants. So this is like when we're at our, when the worship team is like kicking, when like, I don't know, it does tend to be when Claude Michelle or Jocelyn are leading and you got something inside you that's like, yes, Lord, right? Some of you, when I really get preaching, you start to like, you start to, you start to move in a more, you, you start to give feedback. This is like a joke moment right now. This is where you give feet. Never mind. We awake tonight? I know it's daylight savings. All right, I'm coming. I'm coming for you strong now. 
He's salivating over this tradition and the, the enthusiastic responses of, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Savior. Rather than, he says, rather than abandoning all of this, he suggests that secular audiences respond to atheist preaching by lauding their heroes. Thank you, Plato. Thank you, Shakespeare. Thank you, Jane Austen. Don't laugh, it makes sense. But I wonder how Shakespeare, whose world was fundamentally shaped by Christianity, would have felt about being cast as an atheist icon. When it comes to Jane Austen, the answer is clear. And even though Jane Austen, she had unbelievably deep abiding faith in Jesus, I am quite positive she would not be a fan. It's just interesting. In this talk, one of the most popular talks on atheism in the world, the reference points for why can't we shout out our heroes, and he drops a two, maybe three followers of Jesus. At the 2016 Reason Rally designed to mobilize atheists, agnostics, and nuns, multiple speakers invoked Martin Luther King's March on Washington as if a rally that despised Christianity would have pleased one of the most powerful Christian preachers in American history. In the same year, in the same year, the Atlantic Monthly uh, put an article out that promised to explain, quote, why the British tell better children's stories. Why the British tell better children's stories. In this reading, they basically say they are more, um, American Christian stories, I'm sorry, American children's stories are less compelling because they are more Christian. So they're making the argument because this Christian worldview hangs over, American kids' stories not as good as British ones. This is where it gets awesome. The author cited the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia as examples of stories shaped by paganism. You may not know these cultural reference points at all, stay with me, but just to let you know, they were, those two books, Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, were written by probably two of the most profound, upfront Christian thinkers in history. It's actually not a mystery at all, those two. <laughs> J.K. Rowling, author that's uh, referenced on the side of paganism as well chose not to disclose her fragile Christian faith until the last Harry Potter book was published. Anyone who knows Harry Potter should know why. Why? What happens to Harry at the end? Yeah, but what happens after he dies? <laughs> Someone just ruined the whole book. I was, I was going to read that series. She didn't disclose this because she feared it would give the story away. This is a trend all over the place. An unbelievably strange appropriating act, my favorite one slash least favorite, 2018 film version of Madeline Ingalls' A Wrinkle in Time. Remember this one? Oprah? I didn't see it either. But one writer talks about <laughs> it removed every Christian reference from the book. Secular philosopher reflects on the plagiarizing of Christian thought, because that's what this is in this way. This is Luke Ferry, a secular philosopher, incredibly well-regarded in his field. He says, there is in Christian thought above all in the realm of ethics ideas, which are of great significance even today and even for non-believers, ideas which once detached from their purely religious origins acquired an autonomy that came to be assimilated into modern philosophy. For example, the idea that the moral worth of a person does not lie in his inherited gifts or talents, but in his free use he makes of them, 
is a notion which Christianity gave to the world and which many modern ethical systems would adopt for their purposes. Again, if you're not quite following me, this is just called plagiarism. He goes on, I would like to explain why Christian thought gained the upper hand over Greek thought and dominated Europe and won the world. Christians came up with answers to human questions about mortality, which have no equivalent in Greek thought. Answers so successful, if you like, remember he's an atheist, so attractive and so indispensable that they convinced a large proportion of humanity. Now before we go on, I don't want you to get the wrong flavor of where I'm going in the sermon. It's not going to be just some big triumphant, like, look how great Christianity is and the world's the worst. Like, a lot of bad things have been done in the name of Christianity, right? Just open the newspaper and you can see that religious beliefs can harm people. I remember talking to this. This kid came up to me at this after-school arts event years ago. Uh, must have been fifth, fourth grade, maybe, third grade. And uh, he had heard, he was crying because he had heard in class that day that they weren't supposed to do drugs. He heard the phrase, don't do drugs. Some off dare officer or whatever it was at the time came in and did a whole thing about drugs and why drugs are bad. He's crying. I'm like, why are you crying so much? It's like almost hysterical. And he just began to tell me, like, I do drugs. I'm like, what are you talking about? You do drugs. I did. My mom got them for me. Your mom got you drugs. I'm like, we have a big problem here. And as he begins to proceed further and I begin to ask him more questions, he's just talking about cough syrup. (laughs) To say that religion is bad for you is like saying drugs are bad for you without distinguishing cocaine from life-saving medication. Yes, people have twisted the things of Jesus, just like people have twisted secular ideals that were never meant to produce death. Funny enough, to use this drug metaphor, take it a little further, in 2016, the Harvard School of Public Health professor Tyler Vanderweel and journalist John Sniff wrote a USA Today op-ed entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. He wrote, if one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would, it play, would our society place on it? For most Americans, going to church, even to the extent of reducing mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period, research suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. I keep giving you these quotes and the people who say them because these are not perpetuated by Christian writers. It's important. What makes going to church so powerful? I mean... Community is a big piece of this. Community is, 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 I mean, critiques are quick to point out that, like, yeah, it's basically just because that's a place where you can have relationships, which is true. Community plays an important role in people's well-being. But community alone only accounts basically for less than 30% of the positive effect of religious participation. In other words, there's more going on when we get together than a social club. Can I get an amen from all the followers of Jesus? There's more going on here. So I want to explore just a couple as we kind of land this plane. A few counterintuitive biblical commands and see how they relate to modern psychology. I know that like kept you on the edge of your seat. Follow me. First, is it really more blessed? Are you really more blessed to give than to receive? There is a growing body of research that giving is just good for you. Volunteering has a positive impact on our mental and physical health. This is a study called Volunteering a Public Health Intervention. 
Actively caring for others often yields greater physical and psychological benefits than being cared for. Helping others in the workplace seems to improve career satisfaction. And financial generosity has psychological payoffs. Unbelievable amounts of study on this. Atheist social psychologist Jonathan Hyde, I think it's Hyde how you say it, um, I know I'm going to quote multiple times. He observes this. Surveys have shown that religious believers in the U.S. are happier, healthier, long-lived, and more generous to charity um, and to each other than are secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more time to and of their blood, literally. It's an interesting observation. Jesus says, and uh, Paul writes about Jesus, and everything I did, I showed you, or sorry, Luke, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of Jesus himself. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm going to do this little back and forth thing for a few minutes. This is what modern psychology is saying in droves. Where do we see this continue to line up with the things of Jesus? Next, love of money disappoints. In a 2016 survey of the, uh, in the American freshmen, 82.3% of freshmen checked, quote, becoming very well off financially as an essential to a very important life objective. This represents an increase nearly 10% in the last decade and has overtaken raising a family. More people, statistically, according to the study, are interested in being wealthy than raising a uh, family as a top priority. Beyond our student years, many of us live as if money will buy us happiness, sacrificing family, friendships on the altar of career. But Hyde comments this. He says, wealth itself has only a small direct effect on happiness because it is so effectively speeds up the, the, the hedonic treadmill. He's basically saying wealth itself has only a small direct effect on happiness. Only a small effect. Jeffrey Sachs notes in the World Happiness Report in 2018 in the U.S., income per capita has more than doubled since 1972, while happiness or subjective well-being has remained roughly unchanged or even declined. What does the Bible say? For those of us raised on a steady diet of capitalism, the Bible's kind of hard. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 6.10, we see the Apostle Paul calls the love of money a root of all kinds of evil. Not the root, a root. The Bible warns, there are biblical warnings that the love of money turns out to be, that the, again, sorry, biblical warnings against the love of money turn out to be more true than we realize. Next, work is calling. Seeing your work with purpose and calling. Psychological research suggests that we need meaningful work to thrive. If we work just for money, we tend to find it unsatisfying. But if we put our heart into our work and see it as a calling that resonates with our values, that fits a larger vision, we experience joy. University of Pennsylvania psychologist Professor Angela Duckworth tells a parable to illustrate this. She says, three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I'm laying bricks. The second says, I'm building a church. The third says, I'm building the house of God. The first bricklayer has a job. The second has a career. The third, she says, has a calling. We can apply this to the least glamorous job. One study observed the attitudes of janitors emptying bedpans and cleaning up vomit 
in a hospital. They saw themselves as part of a team caring for the sick who went above and beyond to do their job with excellence and saw their work as a calling, enjoyed it far more than those who worked just for a paycheck. So whether we're performing brain surgery or cleaning up vomit, we can put our heart into our work, connect with a larger purpose, and gain satisfaction. Some of us take this for granted, and you're like, yeah, of course that's a better way to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's actually a, brand, a brand-ish new idea that is introduced with the Christian ethic around work and calling. In Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Paul encourages Christians that even their work could be a calling. We use this phrase often. We are joining God in the renewal of all things. I love this phrase because if you actually lean into it, it's like every little sugar the baker puts into the pie, every like drop off of the mail, like every small act, every good deed of wholeness and beauty somehow goes on in God's good world. This isn't just a trick we play on ourselves. This is an acknowledgement that there's a bigger calling that we're a part of. And secular psychology is realizing when people have a big vision, when people have a big vision of the world, it, it does something to them and of their call. Followers of Jesus are called to see their work as part of their worship. I need to speed up a little bit here. I got like 20 more. We can really be happy in all circumstances. Modern psychology suggests that we have a highly developed ability to synthesize happy, happiness. Harvard psych, uh, psychology professor Daniel, Daniel Gilbert calls this our psychological immune system. He gives a number of just profound examples of what, can, what happens when people actually um, realize and, and, um, and, and can cultivate in their own heart a sense of I'm going to be grateful no matter what comes. All of the examples, I'm going to spare us like a really long quote right now, but all of the examples that Gilbert gives in this Harvard study are examples of, of followers of Jesus, and if you email me, I'll send you this long quote, where he just gives example after example of, of he's not evaluating this on the construct of religion, they just happen to all be Christians, where he's talking about people who have been beat down, he's talking about racial inequality, he's talking about the ache and brokenness of the world, and these people who counted this almost as a gift and an opportunity to experience and grow in their happiness. The Bible says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. One more. Gratitude is good for us. Psychologists today have discovered that conscious daily gratitude is quite literally making you healthier. In experiment comparisons, those who kept gratitude journals on a weekly basis exercised more, reported, sorry, reported fewer um, physical symptoms, felt better about their lives, and were more optimistic about the upcoming week than those who recorded hassles or neutral life events. Psychology professor Robert Emmons calls gratitude, quote, the forgotten factor in happiness research. We know this. The Bible commands Christians to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. By the way, this isn't unrealistic or insensitive. I'm over. People are like, oh, don't say that. That's so, like, insensitive. Like, you don't know what I'm going through. Paul writes this from jail. He's been shipwrecked, rejected, and sick with a proper execution. 
just as a little moment that we can have as an aside, I'm now going to give you permission that when your friend's going through hell, you can say give thanks in all circumstances. All right? Sound good? Great. I say that because we often just don't have enough faith. We need to mourn with people. We need to be sensitive to the brokenness that's happening. But when you have modern psychology going, when you cultivate gratefulness, when you cultivate gratitude, i.e. when you force it upon yourself, it will actually change the way you are being in the world and your health. And as followers of Jesus, we actually have real reasons to be grateful and real reasons to be open and alive. All right, last one. Perseverance and self-control help us thrive. Perseverance and self-control appear to be key predictors of flourishing across a whole range of indexes. Psychologist Angela Duckworth suggests that the quality of grit, which she defines as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals, can be more predictive of a person's success than social intelligence, good looks, health, and IQ. The Apostle Peter urged his readers, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Jesus called the Christian life a hard road. The writer of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So all this, I'll stop. None of this magically proves that Christianity is true. But it raises a number of questions. Tyler Vanderweel, again, this Harvard professor, says, any educated person should at some point critically explain examine the claims of Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. Again, not a Christian writer. There's all sorts of compelling evidence that so many of our individual and social goods arise from participation in the way of Jesus that line up with modern psychologists. Now, this, this alignment raises, again, questions in our minds, questions that we're going to explore over the coming weeks. But I want to go back as we close to the verse that we started with. Thieves come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, Jesus, have come to give you life and life to the full. This is strong language. I love when Jesus, people try to make Jesus out to just be this like really sensitive, happy, soft, smiley, always just sort of radically inclusive with no thought of justice at all kind of individual. Jesus says here, false teachers, false narratives aren't moderately misguided. But like, like false teachers aren't just a little bit misguided and God just really loves them ultimately. He calls them thieves. Jesus calls other human beings thieves, robbers that are doing harm. There are people, there are worldviews there are mindsets that actually are doing harm. We talk a lot in our culture about harm, and I love that. That's really good. We need to talk about harm. And so I, I humbly put forth that the way of Jesus would simply say anything outside the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus on some level, even the plagiarized pieces, will ultimately produce harm. They'll be like a, a thief, robbing people, hurting people. False teachers hurt people. False ideologies, ways of thinking about the world. 
that subtly strip Jesus of his own ideas are like a kingdom without a king. There are so many who have assumed the way of Jesus will ultimately die out. So many. This is a common narrative. Ultimately, all this will sort of fade. And perhaps the biggest shock to that worldview, to that secular, anti-Christian, anti-religious worldview is actually China. A country that's tried hard to imagine and enforce no religion. One writer says conservative estimates from 2010 put China's Christian population at over 68 million, representing 5% of its vast population. But more Christians than the... the, um, But Christianity is spreading so fast that experts believe China could have more Christians than the U.S. by 2030. And that it could be a majority Christian country by 2050. Bingang Yang, a leading sociologist of religion in China, argues that we need to undergo a paradigm shift akin to a scientific revolution as we adjust to the failure of the secularization hypothesis. Much academic discourse rests on the assumption that religion is withering under the scorching heat, he says, of modernization. Secular humanism is seen as the shared ground that we can all stand. But as Rebecca McLaughlin says, that this framework has crumbled. Today we must wake up to the fact that John Lennon's dream was a fantasy. And what is worse, this is kind of a hard word to hear, but what is worse, it was a fantasy fueled by white Western bias and grounded on the assumption that the world would follow where Western Europe led. There is a colonization to secular Western thought. There's a colonization of ideas. Jesus is making a strong claim here that there are people who will twist things or push a life without Jesus that might ultimately hurt people. I would just submit to you, we aren't better off without Jesus. We aren't better off without Jesus. We're better off without thieves, without views that twist and dampen what Jesus offers. We aren't better off without faith. We're better off without a worldview that shrinks things down to just what we can touch, feel, and smell. We aren't better off without Christianity. We're better off without a worldview that removes its author from the discussion. What would Jesus not do? Well, according to this passage, Jesus would not harm. Jesus would not lead us to death. Jesus would not lead us away from life. He leads us to life and he is still doing this today, the good shepherd. See, the God of the Bible is constantly running after us, protecting his people, forgiving them when they jack it up, relentlessly pursuing with a reckless, unfailing love. This is an ideology that's coming for you. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, this is the pursuer. Over the course of the series, and if you're new here to the things of Jesus or church, someone dragged you here, your heart for justice, I mentioned all this, your desire to see things made right, your desire to see less, whatever it is, militarism, to see like 
a compassionate capitalism, if that's a thing, like, like your desire to see wholeness in the world, to see equality, to see freedom, to see opportunity, to see love reign, those desires and aches, I want to affirm all of that in you. I want to affirm that. And as a follower of Jesus, I would simply say my worldview is that, well, obviously you would hold those views because you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And actually what has shaped your vision of the best life, what has shaped your vision of a whole life, what shaped your vision of beauty and goodness, I would humbly submit that it is the way of Jesus that has actually shaped that. You just didn't know the author. I would humbly submit, as would every secular philosopher I just read, would humbly, they would humbly submit, they would just tell you, this is where you got this from. And so over the course of the next five weeks, we actually just want to be, we want to be open and honest and gentle with each other as we explore this together. As we explore these claims, as we explore these hard questions that get lobbied against the way of Jesus. Not with some sort of combative nature. Not with some sort of look how right we are. No, no, no. With a humility and gentleness to go, I get that question. I'm sorry some people have been false teachers, have been thieves in our own faith. And let me show you what this looks like. Let me show you the author's intent. And let me show you, you don't have to have all the resources inside you to live this best life. Jesus gives you what you need. For God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. I've come to you that you may have life and life to the full. We sang this earlier. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall what you won't kick down, something you won't tear down, coming after me. This is language from these stories that Jesus tells about the nature of God. You don't have to have all the strength and resources in yourself to be good. Jesus is like, I've come for you. I want to show you what the life of the ages is. I'm going to meet you in grace. You don't have to perform to, to experience my favor and love and grace and generosity in its fullness. I want to extend an invitation right now, even as we begin this series. That those um, maybe in this room who have never said yes Romans um, said yes to Jesus. Romans 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and be saved. This saving grace is about saying yes. I want to believe this story. I want to believe this author. I believe that Jesus is king and not me. I have a desire 
for all the things that Jesus talks about. It's better to give than to receive, and the love of money is broken, and I get to join God in putting this world back together, and all these things that I believe about the world. I want to place myself under the author of all these good things, things I know and things I don't. I want to trust that I am loved right where I am at. And in my failure to do good all the time, I am saved and known. I can live with Christ forever. So I just want to extend an invitation. I'm going to send two invitations. This one and then one more. This one right now. That if you right now, there's something happening in your heart that maybe is only starting to make sense in your head and you want to say yes to him. I want to encourage you just in a minute. I'm going to count to three and just to throw your hand up to say yes. I want to take that next step. Maybe it's not yes, like I want to become a Christian. It's like, yes, I might want to like lean in a little further into this. Maybe it's like this, like, like it's not this, it's like this. Right? Maybe this is as much arm length as you got right now, as much faith as you got, that's okay. Jesus can do a whole lot with that. Would you close your eyes? Bow your heads for a minute. Lord Jesus, we're just trusting that you're moving. That there may be folks who want to just take like the next step, a small click, a big click. And when they hear this, like if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is king. Believe in your heart that you raised him from the dead. Like believe the story is what he's saying. Believe that my identity can rest in being a loved child of God. Believe that I will live forever with him. Believe that this way is the best possible way to live. I want to master the art of living. I want to abide and grow under the king's lead, not just under my scattered longings and desires. Lord Jesus, would your spirit move, Lord? And if there's anybody in this room right now who just wants to say yes, on a count of three, I just want to encourage you, throw your hand up. Just throw your hand up. One, God loves you so much. God has come and run up the road to you even when you wanted nothing to do with it. Two, his grace, his unmerited favor is a, like it is there for the taking just to say yes to. There's nothing you have to do to earn his grace, salvation, kinship with him at all. Three, just knowing your sins are forgiven. Would you just put your hand up if you want to say yes to Jesus, if you want to become a Christian, if you want to join the movement, if you want to take that next step, just throw your hands up for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are Lord, King forever. You, Lord, good. Your mercy is new every morning.